Well, thank you for, uh, thank you for uh, reading that lengthy passage of Scripture with us. And um, you know that I'm not going to cover that entire text of Scripture. <laughs> Just not possible. It's not in me to do that big of a passage of Scripture and to just glance over uh, in a cursory way over all of the depth and riches, the wealth. Uh, I, felt like, I feel like the Apostle Paul who said there in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the breadth and the depth and the width of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways. After studying this passage, I tell you what, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like I have hit... Well, what many people have already summarized in terms of the book of Hebrews, that we have, we, have, we have essentially reached the heart of the letter. Because the book of Hebrews is about the new covenant. The book of Hebrews is to explain to us how much better we have it under the new covenant. And so now we get to chapter 8 where the author of Hebrews cites the critical passage namely Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 was prophesying for centuries prior to this of the glories that would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to open with me in your Bibles uh, quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, just to show you that this was always part of the plan. This was always part of God's design, His good intention for His people. And that from ages past, God was predicting, God was promising, God was prophesying of the new covenant realities that we see right now in the book of Hebrews. And I'm thinking of this very familiar passage for us, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Beginning in verse 10, some very amazing things are declared here. It says, as to this salvation, after Peter said that we are, we are being protected for this salvation, he says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that is the new covenant believer, the believer in Jesus Christ, they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time, watch this now, the Spirit of Christ. That's a remarkable way to talk about the Holy Spirit, by the way, because if you know anything about the Old Testament, it is always the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of Yahweh. And now the Spirit's uh, uh, designation is the Spirit of Christ, which uh, what does that say for the deity of Christ? Of course. But he says, it was the Spirit of Christ within them, that is within the prophets, he was indicating, and as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, that is what the new covenant is all about, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. The sufferings of Christ refer to his atoning work. It refers to his cross work. It refers to the things that our Savior suffered on the cross. And the new covenant is all about that atoning glory. And um, very relevant to what we're going to be studying here in Hebrews is verse 12 of Peter, where he says, he says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, meaning it was revealed to them, it was shown to them 
through biblical prophecy that what these things were pertaining to was not themselves. It was not the Israel under the old covenant that would experience the glorious realities of the cross. But he says, they were, they were serving not themselves, but you. In other words, a future generation. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you, that's the apostles, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then, if you are not marveling at these things, the angels are marveling at these things. Because it says, things into which the angels long to look. So, if you are not excited about new covenant revelation, if you are not excited about what is, what is promised in the new covenant, what is contained in the new covenant, then, my friend, I'm saying that you need to study it a little bit closer. You need to spend more time meditating on the truth of it because these are things that angels gawk at. They long to look into these magnificent things, things pertaining to the Son of God things pertaining to God's only begotten Son who came into the world to save sinners. This marvelous grace, amazing grace, that's what the angels are looking at. And they are marveling at the grace of God. The angels long to look at the glory which God has now fully disclosed to us. It's Essentially, what the Apostle Paul said in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, it is a mystery that was once hidden, now revealed. That's the same thing that Peter just said. They were making careful searches and careful inquiries, seeking to know what time and what person the Spirit of Christ within them was prophesying about. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. The mystery that was once hidden now has been fully manifested, fully revealed, fully declared. The new covenant is on a new page. It's on a new covenant. It's in a New Testament page. And it's now being applied directly to the people of God, the church, and the new covenant through Jesus Christ. It's really remarkable. It's an amazing, remarkable thing that God has done and what He has accomplished. Now, as the author of Hebrews begins to talk about the glories and the supremacy of the new covenant, because that's really his emphasis here, we're going from old covenant to new covenant. That's simple enough, right? We're going from the old covenant to the new covenant. But in doing that, the author has two burdens, and that is, number one, to show that the new covenant is superior, that it is supreme, it is superlative to the old covenant. And if you jump down to verse 13, the old covenant is becoming obsolete. You see that? In fact, matter of fact, he says, it is, coming, is it becoming obsolete and it is ready to disappear so what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand is that there has been a covenantal shift in the economy of God. God's dealings with his people, the way that he relates to us, the way that he dispenses his mercy and his grace and his word and his revelation, all of that has changed now in the new covenant and it is for us to try to decipher precisely how that has taken place. The author begins to stress the supremacy, the glory of the new covenant, 
by showing us the inadequacy of the old. The inadequacy of the old covenant. And so we begin with that point, the inadequacy of the old covenant. You see that there in verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, right, uh, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, there is in that one verse, verse 7, there is the entirety of God changing epochs, changing dispensations, if you would, changing covenantal arrangements right there. It's an amazing pronouncement. I mean, it's difficult for us as Gentiles, removed thousands of years away from the cultus of Israel, that is the ritual life of Israel, to really grasp with all of our mind the shift that has taken place. You must understand that under the old covenant, from the moment you woke up to the moment you went to bed, your life was dominated by old covenant ritual, signs, uh, uh, ceremonies, the way that you ate, the way that you prayed, the way that you washed, the way that you dressed, the way that you cut your hair, the way that you talked, the way that you sang, everything from sunup to sundown was an old covenant life. You were surrounded by it. And God had put all these vestiges out there for you to look at so you can ground your faith in what you were doing and what you were typifying, the temple. The temple, the sign of the temple, the tabernacle, the sign of the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the sign of the sacrificial system, the offerings, all of the offerings, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the meal offering, all of these things. I hope you don't get bored reading your Bibles in the Old Testament when you read about the meal offering and the burnt offering and the wave offering and the sin offering and all these things because if you linger there long enough, what you will find out is that all of those vestiges, all of those symbols, all of those symbolical things, all of those things ultimately have to do with the person of Jesus Christ. You're a Christian, right? You're a Christian? then you're going to love going to the Old Testament and reading about Christ because Christians love Christ. And so if the meal offering is about Christ, if the wave offering is about Christ, then you're going to love to read about that. Why did God tell this little creature on earth to pick up palm branches and wave them in the sky? God said, do this. Right? Why? What's so symbolic about this with palm branches? Well, it was symbolizing that there was a great harvest to come. It was symbolizing that through Jesus Christ, there would be a resurrection from the dead and people would come to life and God would resurrect his covenant people and he would raise them from the dead. That's what's in there. That's what that meant. All of these old covenant vestiges were embedded, they were pregnant with Christocentric meaning. Isn't that glorious? I tell you what, I, like I said time and time again, I have, I have learned to reread my Old Testament in a totally different way. My eyes have been opened. And if you come to the Emmaus Conference in October, hopefully we will open our eyes even further to the glorious things uh, regarding Christ and the Old Testament, Christ in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Covenant was essentially external. 
And it could not, this is why the fault was there. When it says, if the first one had been faultless, that conditional clause is really speaking contrary to fact, meaning, no, there was fault with it. And what precisely was the fault that was there? Well, that's what chapter 9 is going to be about. That's what chapter 10 is going to be about. He's going to extrapolate the insufficiency of the old covenant to produce the types of things that are produced in the new covenant. For example, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, just to clarify that the old covenant could not bring things, as we saw in chapter 7, to perfection. There was no perfection found in the old covenant. Neither priest nor people could be perfected by the old covenant. And you see this um, clarified in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, And there, when he says law, I think he's referring mainly not to the Ten Commandments, but he's referring to something like the Old Covenant and all of its institutions. He says it was a shadow of the things to come, not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, Old Covenant sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year. Here it is, perfect those who draw near. So animal sacrifices cannot make you perfect. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to offer, to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have been conscious, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Excuse me. In other words, if it did what the new covenant did, then old covenant sacrifices would have ceased. That's it. The priest would have stopped offering sacrifices if it would have accomplished what needed to be accomplished, and that is a sacrifice. A sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That's what the text is telling us. That what the old covenant was basically doing was it was prophesying in all the repeated sacrifices one after another. It was predicting that there is a sacrifice, oh, there is a sacrifice coming to end all sacrifices once and for all so that there no longer needs to be any more done, no more performed. The halls of the temple went silent. No more priests working in the courts, outer court, inner court, the holy place, And of course, the holy of all, the holy of holies. There was no more need for a priest to be active in these rooms, doing these rituals and performing these sacrifices and being a mediator between God and man. There was a sacrifice that finally came in that ended it all. And now we just look to one supreme ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For it is impossible. Possible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It covered the people temporarily as a token of their religion and for some as an indication of their faith, but it did not take away sin. It didn't take it away. But that is man's deepest need. 
And that's why the fault is found under the old covenant. Because man's deepest need is to be forgiven. Don't you know that? Man's deepest need is not the things that you see commercials spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on. You need this. You need this. You need this product. You need this medicine. You need this diet. You need this clothing. You need this music. You need this politician. You need this party to win. You need this. All day long, we are bombarded by suggestive language telling us what we really need. Oh, you're not going to be happy until you have this, right? And I have to confess, I just got a new, iPhone, uh, a new smartphone. And I got I to tell you, I wanted the smartphone. <laughs> I did want it. I didn't like my old one, to be quite honest. And I looked up reviews, and I read articles, and man, sure enough, there was all the advertisement I needed to tell me, you need this, you need this, you need this. But none of those things are what I really need what you really need is to have your sin taken away. Your guilt, your, your conscience cleansed. Isn't that remarkable? Think of that, that the most fundamental issue that man needs is altogether invisible to him. It is altogether immaterial, spiritual, non-physical. It is non-visible. It is all within. It is all a heart condition. You know, the children of Israel had many conquests throughout their history. They won treasures. They plundered the Egyptians. They had all of these, all this gold. They had too much gold to build the temple, remember? And yet, what was the thing that God required of them? A new heart. A new heart. In other words, it says, the hymn says, Come to Jesus without money and buy. Everything that you need is, has already been provided for you in the gospel. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. You cannot work for it. You cannot strive after it. There is nothing that you can do to produce it. And therefore, it is a miracle what God has done in the new covenant. As we will see in the weeks ahead, we're going to see the application of the new covenant to the new covenant believer, and God has provided everything that we are ever going to need. For example, propitiation. Not only was the old covenant insufficient in that it didn't perfect anything, it was also insufficient in that it never provided the reality of what it talked about. So, for example, look with me at Romans chapter 3, because there, Romans chapter 3, we get to the very essence of how our sin is taken away, how our sin is taken away. And my friends, listen, it is not enough for you to say, well, God took away our sin, Jesus, the cross, that's it. But that's not all that the Word of God says. We have to see the words and the vocabulary that's used by the New Testament authors. Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 24. Being justified, how? As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And uh, this gets specific now, verse 25. Boy, I hope you have a Bible and you're looking at these words. It's imperative for you to do that. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. There's one of those big words that pastors are told to shy away from in their sermons. 
<laughs> right? Don't use those big words. You'll scare people away and you can't grow a church that way. Well, that's not our primary concern here. Primary concern here is just to teach the Bible. Whatever the Bible says, that's what we'll preach. Verse 25 is saying that Jesus is the propitiation in his blood through faith. That is how he removes our sin. Propitiation is a remarkable word. It's a, it's a word that can mean two things depending on its context. It can mean, number one, either the removal of sin, so the Greek word helasmos, can mean either the removal of sin or it can mean the removal of wrath. Okay, And you see this, if you go back to Leviticus, you see the goats that were sent out of the camp sent out of the city, right? There was two representative goats. One was the goat that you would transfer your sin upon and send it out into the wilderness. And that was a perfect picture of what is known as expiation, removing sin, right? It comes from helasma, same word. And that's a perfect picture of what Christ did for us. He sent sin away. He removed sin from the camp. But there was another goat. But this goat was slaughtered. And his blood was shed. And his blood was offered up as a sin offering. And that is a perfect picture, not of expiation, but of propitiation. The removal of the wrath of God. Here is the community of God's people. Two things need to happen. Sin needs to be taken out. And the wrath of God needs to be removed in order for the community to thrive in order for the community to say, God will be our God and we will be his people. The only way that that's going to happen is if sin is removed and wrath is satisfied. And that's what Jesus Christ did. None of the old covenant sacrifices could do that. They could picture that. They could show you that. They could talk of that. They were pictures and images and copies and shadows, but they were not the reality of it. No goat ever turned the wrath of God away. The wrath of God, if you're still there in Romans chapter 3, is taken away in terms of applying it to us through faith. So if you were under the old covenant, what does that mean? Are you doomed? No. What it means is that you could put faith in what those symbols are are depicting what those symbols are representing, and by virtue of your faith, you will be justified in the sight of God. It's not in the symbol itself. It's not in the sacrifice itself. But under the new covenant, it is all about the sacrifice, the perfect, efficacious nature of the sacrifice. When it says that the old covenant had fault, we also have to be very careful to note that what it's not saying is that the morality of the Old Covenant law, for example, the Ten Commandments, a summary of God's law, that there was something wrong with the Ten Commandments, that there was something wrong with thou shalt not lie. No, 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 no. There's a clue here. Look back at Hebrews chapter uh, 8, verse 8, verse 8. There's a clue here to help us out. And it says here, explaining the fault of the old covenant, he says, for, that's an explanation clause, explaining verse 7, for finding fault with them. You see that? 
Now, there's a textual criticism debate here because there is evidence that it could go either way in terms of finding fault with it or finding fault with them. I think, and the majority of scholarship agrees, that the plural personal pronoun, them, is the better reading, and that is the way that the ESV, the NASB, and other translations, good translations, are going to translate that. So I think that's correct. Finding fault with them, oitois, is the word. In other words, it was the sin of the people. In other words, it's the same thing that the Apostle Paul talked about in in Romans chapter 7, that the law is good and holy and righteous, but it is the fact that the law takes advantage of the flesh, and because of the flesh, the law can only kill you. It cannot justify you. The law can tell you what you need to do, what you need to be, but it does not provide you with the power to do it. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Now, but there is a sense in which the old covenant people also were inadequate. They were inadequate because they failed to do all that was in the law. And that brings up the new covenant. So it gives God the occasion. Look at this. If it would have been faultless, there would have been no, watch this, occasion sought for a second. Because the old covenant and the people in the old covenant were deficient, were inadequate, God took that as an opportunity to bring in a second, to speak of a second in the future. So now, let's read verse 8, beginning with the quote. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this might be one of the most controversial sermons that I'm ever going to preach in this church, okay? And that is because what I have decided to focus on is not just the eschatology of the new covenant, but also, and and the administration of the new covenant being sovereignly administered, but also the unifying of the people of God in the new covenant. But first, before we get there, let's think about the eschatology of this Uh, new covenant, because it says, behold, days are coming. In other words, this is a covenant that would be ratified in the future. As he goes on to say, it will not be like the one that he made with the fathers when he took them by the hand and let them out of Egypt. No, 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 no. This covenant will be a future covenant and will be a future redemption, not like the one that he performed when uh, Israel was taken out of Egypt. Now, the reason why this is important is because when Jeremiah chapter 30, 31 was written, the people of Israel were in a horrific situation. I don't think I can explain that strong enough. You're talking about the seizure of lands, property, family, family members being carried off in the night. Because of what? Because of the Babylonian exile. God had promised not just this glorious new covenant, but if you skip prior to that in the book of, 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 uh, of Jeremiah, God is also predicting that there is a looming judgment coming upon Israel when Israel will be whisked away to Babylon, an evil empire that's going to do them great, great harm. 
And so, Jeremiah chapter 30, all the way to Jeremiah chapter 33, begins what is known by theologians as the hope chapters of Israel. The new covenant is smack dab in the middle of the hope chapters of Israel, which speaks about God uh, restoring his people, restoring the fortunes of his people. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 23. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 44. And in many, many other places, God says, I am going to restore the fortunes of my people. That's very, very good news when you're about to be taken in shackles, in chains to another country, and you'll be enslaved for 70 years in a strange land. That is really, really good news. And there was a remnant. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. The very chapter that speaks about this, um, well, I'm in Isaiah, that speaks about the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. Looking at verse 7. There was a people that experienced what you and I are experienced even now in Israel. And it's called the remnant. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people. And then he makes a specification. The remnant of Israel. It is the remnant that experienced the truly salvific promises of the new covenant. And that is exactly what is going on here? A remnant in the future, in the last days, will experience a, a, um, a, a redemption unlike the old covenant redemption. And we'll get to that slowly. But I also want to point out that Hebrews chapter 1 begins with the last days. You remember that? In these last days, God has spoken through His Son, who he has made heir of all things, right? So we are, notice that the last days began with the ministry of Jesus. But how many people tell you that the last days are, have you ever heard people tell you, you think we're living in the last days? <laughs> I think Jesus was living in the last days. <laughs> and the apostles were living in the last days. And the church for 2,000 years has been living in the last days. See, God thinks in epochs of time, right? The former times, the first age, the, the, the old covenant dispensation is thousands of years long. And so the last days, which has been ongoing now for roughly 2,000 years, the last days, and of course there will be the very end of the last days, will be the consummation of everything. But for 2,000 years, my friends, we've been living in the last days, which means this, that nothing else has to happen, redemptively speaking, before Christ returns. Everything is done. Uh, the only thing we're waiting for now is the consummation for Christ to return, for the Lord to return and to destroy His enemies and to reward His people. That's it. That's what we're waiting for. But notice also, not just the eschatology, but notice the way it's administered. It is sovereign. And this I want you to pay attention back at... Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, it is also sovereignly administered. He says, 
He says, Behold, the, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will affect a new covenant. You see that? He takes it upon himself. And the reason I, I, I stress that is because the, what's known as the I wills of the new covenant. Uh, for example, look down at verse 10. I will make with the house of Israel this covenant. Look at verse 10 again. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 12. I will be merciful to them. I will remember their sins no more. This is a sovereignly administered covenant. We are passive in this, brothers and sisters. We are the recipients of of God's goodness in this covenant. It is 100% unilateral, meaning only God is responsible for making this thing work. The old covenant had some conditional aspects to it. You could break the old covenant. You could leave the old covenant. You could be unfaithful to the old covenant. As a matter of fact, there are passages after passages after passage. The whole book of Hosea is an exposition on how God is going to divorce his old covenant bride. Because that covenant, unlike the new covenant, is conditional in some respect, whereas the new covenant is unconditional. It is sovereignly administered to the people, and it is applied to us thoroughly and completely. Now, I say that it is applied to us, so I want to draw your attention to the wording of the new covenant here when it says, I will effect a new covenant, watch this, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, obviously, we would probably sit here, most of us, and say, well, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I'm not. I I'm not of the house of Judah. I don't belong to the 12 tribes. Do you? Some someone here might say, yes, I am Jewish. Okay. Well, for the rest of us, what does that mean? Because here it says the new covenant was made with Israel, with Judah. So what does that mean precisely? And how are we to interpret this idea of Israel and Judah in, in uh, Jeremiah 31? Is he talking about, as some have argued, that what he's referring to here is ethnic Israel only? That is to say that God made this new covenant only with the Jewish people, not with Gentiles at all. In other words, you and I, God did not make this new covenant with us. Well, obviously, I am of the persuasion that Israel and Judah here in this phrase represents the people of God as a whole. And I think there are many, many, many reasons to believe that. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to give you 11 arguments. You're like, boy, 11 arguments. <laughs> I promise you they'll go really, really quick of why we ought not look at Israel and Judah speaking specifically or only of ethnic Israel. Absolutely not. And I would say the reason why, first reason why is that covenant is absolutely salvific right? Remember these verses? I will put my laws in their heart. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God. I will forgive their sin. But the problem is, folks, is that for the last 2,000 years, let's be honest, 
I've studied church history enough to know that for the last 2,000 years, the great vast majority of Jewish people reject Jesus Christ down to this very day. Raise your hand if you've been to Israel. I've been to Israel a couple of times, and I've talked to Hasidic Jews. I've talked to Orthodox Jews. I've talked to regular Jews on the street. I've gone down to the Western Wall and talked to rabbis. I've gone into the rabbi's tunnel and talked to the rabbis about the Torah. And I can tell you that they, not only do they not believe in Jesus Christ, but they have reserved great blasphemies for Jesus Christ. And if you read their Talmudic literature, and if you read some of their rabbinical writings, great blasphemies are spoken about Christ, who He is, and uh, words that I would not even repeat here. But, but suffice it to say that the vast majority of Jews are perishing And so, for me, it makes absolutely no sense that if God is going to make a new covenant with ethnic Jews, that for the 2,000 years after the New Testament, the vast majority of Jews perish. So that's one argument that I find to be compelling. Number two, John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13 tells us that entrance into the people of God is not according to ethnicity. Paul, uh, John couldn't have said it any stronger. He says, it is not by birth, or it's not by the will of man, it is not by the will of the flesh, and it is not by blood, which means it is not by your ancestry, your race, your ethnicity, that you will become a child of God. It is solely through a sovereign act of God who gives you new life through regeneration, the new birth. The new birth is part of the new covenant. Look at verse 10. When he says, I will write God's, God's law says, he will write God's laws on the heart. That is language for regeneration. It is through the new birth, it is through the new covenant salvation that people have the word of God written on their heart. That is language of regeneration. And so unless God re- writes his law on your heart, you are not in the new covenant. You're not in the new covenant. Forgiveness of sins is clearly the benefit of the new covenant. But also this, folks, that redemptive historical typology, and let me, let me stop there because that's a big term, right? But let me just say this, that the, when you look at the Old Testament and you think of David, you think of the temple, you think of the tabernacle, you think of the land, you think of all these promises, we know that these old covenant promises don't work out literally. In other words, Hosea, Hosea chapter 3, we are told in verse 5 that David is coming and that Israel and Judah are going to be united to David. Are we sitting here today waiting for the return of David, the son of Jesse? Of course not. David will not return to us, folks, in the second coming. Well, he will, but he will be in the church. <laughs> he, will be, he will be a saint at that time. Of course not. David is a symbol of Christ. The, the, the temple is a symbol, as Hebrews has already told us, of the heavenly sanctuary, of heaven itself. The land is a symbol, as uh, Peter will, uh, Hebrews is going to go on to say, the land is a symbol of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. And therefore, Israel and Judah are a symbol of the people of God as a 
whole. Also, we are told in the New Testament that Christians now bear the titles that are given to Israel. For example, James chapter 1, verse 11, Christians are called the 12 tribes of Israel. They're referred to as the 12 tribes. Also, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, we are called the true circumcision. In Ephesians chapter 5, we are called the bride, which is a title that was always and only reserved for Israel. Matter of fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 2, and we'll finish here. As you can tell, I summarized those 11 points. Romans chapter 2, I think, makes the issue rather clear. Romans chapter 2, verse 28, says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. You see that? Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is, from, is not from men, but from God. Right there, we are being told that a true Jew, the identity of a Jew now is spiritual. You are more Jewish if you have the Spirit of God residing in you than the, than the, than the ethnic Jewish person who is in Israel today bowing and praying at the Western Wall, who actually, Paul says, is now considered a Gentile. Amazing. This is how much things have switched. And the reason why I thought it was important to stress the identity of the people of God in the new covenant is because I don't want you to feel like a second-class citizen in the economy of God. It's as if, well, the real, the real stuff is for Israel, ethnic Israel. The church is just kind of an in-between thought. It's kind of like plan B. Because things didn't work out with Israel, God had to do something with the church. No, folks, I want you to feel like you are the apple of God's eye. If you are in Christ, another title for Israel is the title Beloved that is used over and over and over in Exodus to speak of Israel, which now the apostles use to speak of the church when they call the church Beloved. That's not just a sentimental phrase. That is a new identity of the people of God. They are God's beloved. The reason why is because from the very beginning, God always had a plan to save a remnant, an elect group in Jesus Christ through the gospel, through the cross. And if you have put your faith in that Christ, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, you are children of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we are so incredibly privileged by the gospel. Your people that are sitting here today are not second-class citizens in the kingdom. You have one people of God, and the church was your ultimate design to display to the whole universe that you have brought Jew and Gentile together in one group. And Lord, we're so grateful that you have brought us out of the group that we were in, the world, that we used to be identified not as the children of God, but the children of the devil. And Lord, you took us out of that number and you put us into the number 
of the church of the firstborn who reside in heaven, whose citizenship is in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray today, help us to feel that privileged status. Oh, Lord, that you love your new covenant people so much that you have set your love upon us, that you have set your seal upon us, that you have given us the Spirit as a pledge that cries out, Abba, Father, because indeed, Lord, you are our Father, and we are your sons and daughters. And for that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. Fathers, we go through the uh, exposition of the new covenant. I pray that, we, that our lives would be liberated, that we would be set free as we consider all the glorious things that have happened to us because of Christ, His blood, His sacrifice, and His cross, that we have been truly, genuinely set free. We have been bought with a price. Our life is no longer our own, and now we are free to worship and serve the living God. We praise You for that, Lord. We pray that You would be exalted as we meditate and contemplate all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.